This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas feels, no matter what an education voucher is called, the policy is the same. Vouchers divert public funds to private schools and vendors. Find out more at raiseyourhandtexas.org. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for July 7th, 2023. I'm Alexa Uda, a reporter for the Trib, filling in for Matthew, who is on some well-deserved time off this week. Today, we're talking about the heat, not just about how hot it's been in Texas lately and the deadly implications of that, but what this means for our state in the long term, as climate change shifts the entire range of Texas heat upwards. Joining me this week is Aaron Douglas, the Tribune's climate reporter, whose beat covers the impacts of climate change, including extreme heat, drought, and hurricanes. Hi, Aaron. Hello. So we are chatting at the end of the week, during which we saw the hottest day on Earth since at least 1979, and potentially in much farther than that. Um, you know, it was a pretty awful and oppressive June. The heat wave we were stuck in, which seems like it's finally eased, ushered in essentially a public health crisis. And all of this comes the summer after heat-related deaths in Texas reached a two-decade high last year during what up to then had been the state's second hottest summer on record. Can you walk us through what was going on and why this heat, you know, even in a state like Texas, felt so unrelenting? Sure. Yeah, so this summer is not expected to be abnormally hot because we are transitioning right now into an El Nino. Last summer, we were in a La Nina pattern, which is essentially like a big weather pattern uh, caused by the oceans. But basically what it means for Texas is that La Nina tends to bring us drier weather and that tends to exacerbate heat. And so last year, when we had that record hot summer, we were in a La Nina pattern. And so we thought heading into this summer that it would be a little better. Um, But then we had this big heat dome event happen. And essentially a heat dome is a weather pattern. Um, And so what we had was, you know, more than three weeks of hundred degree temperatures stretching across the state, you know, shattering records, prompting all these excessive heat warnings and heat waves are very dangerous because they were so big and they last for so long and they affect a huge area as we saw like thousands of miles. Um, And they most often occur in the summer when we have very weak circulation in the atmosphere and not a lot of energy. And so weather patterns just kind to tend to kind of just sit on top of you. And so, you know, one reason you might hear it called a heat dome is because the air is essentially shaped like an inverted stadium and the warm air gets trapped above an area with a lot of pressure forming and that pushes the air downward. So the air is sinking, sinking, compressing. And as that air is pushing downward, it warms up is like a thermodynamic (laughs) relationship, right? Um, And so because there's so much pressure pushing downward, 
it's also squeezing out any chance for clouds to form to kind of break up this weathered pattern. And so they tend to stick around for a long time, as we saw. And, you know, the other issue with heat domes is that usually we get a break from the heat in Texas when the sun goes down at night. Um, but in this type of weather system, the air keeps compressing at night. It doesn't stop when the sun goes down. And so it continues to create more and more heat even in the nighttime. So that's basically what happened the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I had ever even heard the term heat dome before this. Um, and that that inverted stadium is actually a really uh, easy visual to, to really understand that. Um, you know, th there was a line in one of your recent stories that is probably just sort of basic knowledge to people like you who, who sort of think about this all day as part of your job. But I found it really astounding and, and really saddening that he is already the most dangerous type of weather, typically killing more people annually than hurricanes, tornadoes, or flooding. As we think about the events of the last few weeks and this heat dome and the impact of these sort of weather events on, on folks and, and the sort of deadly implications of that, should we be thinking about it as a new normal? Is it something that's going that we're going to be seeing more regularly? Is it still a bit of an outlier? How how do how should we think about this knowing that he is already so dangerous to people? Yeah, he is extremely dangerous. And I think people take it for granted because it's kind of a silent killer in a way. And even trying to cover this extreme event, you know, you hear some anecdotes of folks being reported who are who are dying in the heat, but it's hard to get a like an overall sense of the damage because there's not like a big flooding event where you can see all like literally see all the infrastructure damage, you know. Um, but in terms of like whether it's a new normal, I I actually saw a quote from a climate scientist Michael Mann, who's a who's a very famous uh, climate scientist, and he was quoted in the Associated Press about a week or two ago where he said along these lines that quote if we continue to warm the planet, we don't settle into some new state. It's an ever moving baseline of worse and worse. And I think that really captures the problem here, which is like, it's not as though we are headed towards a certain new climate. If we continue to put fossil fuels into the atmosphere, and until we stop putting fossil fuels into the atmosphere and creating heat trapping gases, in the globe, then we continue the progression of like more and more bad. And so that's why it's not like an either or. It is we with every reduction that we get in not putting as much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is a good thing <laughs> because it reduces, it mitigates the impact of climate change. And with heat waves in particular, you know, there's a lot of severe weather events where we may not have the science to say exactly how climate change is messing with severe weather events, or we may know a little bit, but not all the ways or all the mechanisms. Heat is interesting because it's very clear there's been a lot of studies on it. And, you know, climate change is clearly amplifying the effects of heat waves, and they're stretching for longer periods of time they're reaching higher temperatures than they would otherwise if climate change was not happening. And they're occurring more often than they would otherwise if climate change was not occurring. Well, and when you when you think about sort of the gradual way in which this occurs, the there was um, recent reporting that y'all did showing really how over the last 10 years, you know, taking a step back, right? Not thinking just of how hot it is today or how, how, it, how hot it's been this summer 
taking a step back and realizing that over the last 10 years, the, I think that the figure was there were more than 1600 days when a heat record was matched or broken at one of the 22 weather stations across Texas. And then even taking a farther step back, there was a, a figure that showed that the number of record high temperatures measured across the state had increased 510% essentially in the last 100 years. So, I mean, help us understand how climate change makes things like extreme heat worse. Like, what it, What is the actual science behind the extreme heat variations that we're seeing and, and feeling? Yeah. So if you think about the main mechanism of climate change is heat being trapped by an increased amount of carbon dioxide and other heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. So if that's trapping more heat energy, then that's pushing the average temperature that we're seeing upwards. And that makes extreme heat higher than we would have otherwise. And so it's essentially, as you said earlier, like shifting the whole baseline to the to the right, I guess, a little bit. And so, you know, the problem is particularly pronounced in areas in very dry areas like the Southwest um, due to a lack of soil moisture. And there are some areas of the U.S. where, um, you know, if you have a lot of uh, humidity, soil moisture, uh, vegetation, then that kind of produces a cooling effect. But, um, you know, what we saw in the data was areas where we had uh, a lack of moisture, had a really pronounced effect, like seeing a lot more extreme heat days and a lot more increase in average temperature. Um, I did want to say too, like, you know, that figure of in the last decade, there were more than, you know, 1600 days of record hot days. So we compared it to uh, our data team did some fancy analysis. They figured out that an average decade in Texas, starting from the very beginning, as, as far back as we have records from like 1895, an average decade in Texas, we would expect to see around 560 record hot days a year. And so that's a huge difference. Like in the last decade, we saw 1600 versus what a quote unquote normal decade would be, would be 560. Yeah, that that is quite the quite the jump. Um, you know, it, as part of this analysis, you also found that you know, obviously, every county in Texas has seen an average increase in temperatures over this sort of last decade that you were using as a measurement. But that there are areas of the state that have seen sort of more pronounced jumps in these record-breaking temperatures. It was West Texas, the Panhandle, and the Gulf. Why, why are, why is this not felt equally? I know you mentioned things like vegetation and 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 sort of the ability to re, the soil retention or or rather uh, humidity or moisture retention in the soil. But what what is going on that these areas of the state are feeling it so much more significantly than than other areas? Yeah. So, like we mentioned, one of the main factors is places with low soil moisture. Uh, they're really seeing that excess. Uh, solar radiation. There's no cooling effect for them to help them out. Um, you know, you can kind of think about it like as sweating. Um, you know, if if there's an if there's excess solar radiation happening because of climate change and because more of the heat is getting trapped in the atmosphere and reflecting back down to Earth, um, 
you know, we sweat to cool our bodies down. Plants are essentially doing the same thing. Um, some of the excess energy basically is going into evaporating the water and that's producing that cooling effect. But there's other factors as well. Like um, a couple scientists mentioned to me, just increased urbanization of our cities, um, especially in places like Texas, where we're growing super, super fast and cities are expanding, suburbs are expanding. And there's two problems with that. <laughs> One is that there's something called the urban heat island effect, which, you know, listeners may uh, know about that, but essentially um, concrete buildings, a lack of green spaces that is causing ground level heat to radiate. And that increases the temperatures in cities because you're just bouncing back the heat. Um, you're not absorbing it or putting it into um, putting it into anything. You're just taking it all in. Um, versus if you had green spaces or something reflective, then we wouldn't have that happening. Um, and then we also have the second problem, which is just that more people are vulnerable to dangers from the heat because they're living in hot cities. <laughs> so that makes another um, another problem. Um, other factors, um, you know, weather is just random sometimes. And that's one thing that the state climatologist pointed out. Um, you know, there's a lot of different factors, but you know, climate change, soil moisture, and urban areas, those are some, but also weather patterns just happen. <laughs> and so, and so there's just a lot of variation. And so it's interesting to see, but I think the main takeaway is that, you know, not all places are going to be affected equally, um, but all places in Texas are warming. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. And Texas Association of Community Colleges. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Learn more at tacc.org. And so obviously we think about the way to respond or the things that need to change in light of these in this increasing baseline. And we think about things like a resilient electric grid, which is something that everyone's often, you know, top of mind for a lot of folks given the last few years here, not just in extreme weather events when it's cold, but now in, in the summer when that demand for, you know, running AC is, is increasing. But you've also talked to experts who have offered other examples, things like dams and infrastructure that can also be affected by these sort of increasing uh, baseline temperatures. What, what, how do we adapt to this? And is there a need to sort of separate those changes on sort of a macro and, and micro level? Because there's an extent to which I think that an individual person might not be able to make a big difference in in some of these bigger infrastructural conversations i would think yeah yeah so on the infrastructure stuff i think one of the points to really keep in mind is that just a few degrees of difference can really jeopardize electricity and other types of infrastructure like our what you call what we kind of call the built environment is very, very vulnerable to changes in our climate because we kind of built up our whole society assuming that there was a certain range of weather and a certain range of temperature that was going to happen. And now we're falling outside of that range more and more frequently. And so 
with the grid, um, the grid is, as you said, like very stressed by higher demand. Um, when we see extreme heat, you know, people crank up their air conditioning. Um, at the same time, like higher temperatures are arriving earlier in the season. So it's not just that um, we're falling outside of the range of the temperatures. It's also that different, there's different patterns in when we're seeing the high temperatures. And so that kind of makes a smaller and smaller window for power plants to make repairs or like make upgrades when they typically do that in the spring and fall, uh, when they don't expect to see a lot of high demand. Now we're seeing high demand in the spring and fall because there's very hot temperatures around. Um, so that's one problem. Uh, you mentioned the dams. Um, you know, a lot of dams are small. They're privately owned. They were built decades ago. Uh, one issue with climate change is just that, um, you know, extreme rainfall events um, were less common when they were built. And so it's calling into question the structural integrity of dams. It's also just with drought, like on the flip side, um, having problems with, you know, dams just not being filled and not being a reliable source of water supply for us here. Um, I think the point about like splitting up the big like macro level infrastructure and the micro is really important because um, on on kind of like the micro level, higher heat and like earlier heat than we're used to is affecting people on like a human individual level. For example, like we heard in Webb County where some of the heat related deaths were being reported um, a couple of weeks ago uh, was that, you know, the, the medical examiner there said, well, they heard that some people were going to fix their air conditioning unit, but they hadn't got around to it yet. Because we usually see this type of heat in like late July or August. And so, you know, she was saying their county was caught off guard, like not just the government, but like individual residents were caught off guard by how extreme this heat was and how early in the season it was. Um, so I think that's a, a really like key issue is like informing um everyday people, you know, just on an individual level that, you know, you might need to do your summer preparations earlier than you did in the past. You need to be more prepared for higher temperatures than you've seen in the past. Even if you live in an already very, very hot area, um, it's getting more and more extreme. Sticking with the the macro level part of this, you know, we, we, we're, we're still in a special session now, but we ended a regular legislative session a few months ago or weeks ago in, in which Texas legislators really largely ignored pleas for for some of the critical reforms that environmental advocates had been asking for. Uh, extreme heat in particular appears to have been sort of largely cast aside or at least proposals that could have you know, made a difference or could have at least try to address some of the extreme heat we're seeing and the effects on on folks. We know things like droughts are worsened by higher temperatures. And instead, it often seems like Texas is taking sort of more reactionary steps than preventative. You know, thinking about in the case of droughts, for example, spending millions of dollars to boost water supplies instead of having sort of these broader conversations about climate change and what the state needs to do. Obviously, we're in a state with Republican leadership, you know, a party that hasn't always been open to having conversations about climate change or even acknowledging that that it's real. Is is there a political will to sort of take on those macro level changes and considerations 
that need to happen and and do we do we turn to state legislatures for that or is a venue uh, on a more federal level how do you sort of parse through the the need to have some sort of political will to do something about this yeah we didn't see very much discussion of climate change in the legislature this past session um if anything, to the extent climate change is mentioned, it's usually like saying things like ESG and renewable energy are are bad and should be stopped in Texas. Um, sort of like the dominant narrative for Re- Texas Republicans right now. Um, but I would say, like, as you mentioned, there does seem to be some political will to do things like upgrade our infrastructure, such as the power grid and water supplies. And, you know, I consider that climate policy, you know, even if they're not saying the words climate change. There was also political will to put some money towards uh, building the Ike Dyke and the coastal barrier along Galveston Bay. And that'll, you know, that project is intended to help protect the Houston region from hurricanes and, you know, comes as a result of Hurricane Ike for it's, it's named after. Um, so, I mean, I think stuff like that, there is will to say we're going to protect our state from weather, but not from climate change. And I I think the question becomes whether Texas is going to do those types of infrastructure upgrades in a way that makes sense if agencies and leaders implementing the policy and those regulations and that money like aren't taking climate change into account. And so that becomes a big question. Um, The other question um, is just whether things that are more squarely related to climate change, like extreme heat, gets the attention from lawmakers that it really deserves as it becomes more and more of an emergency. And I think to your point about like what the proper venue is for it, all venues I think are are good. Um, But we do see some action on the local level in particular. Um, You know, when I was calling around doing some reporting on this uh, heat dome, uh, you know, I heard from Dallas County, um, for example, where they have a program to ensure that uh, you can get an affordable or or even like free uh, air conditioning unit or they'll help you fix it. Uh, and so that's a good pro- that's a good local program that is helping people deal with the effects of climate change. Um, there are cooling centers that uh, local uh, governments like to implement, but uh, a lot of people don't use them or even know that they exist. So that's a more challenging policy um, with like mixed results, I think. Um, there are things we could do, like our prisons are very dangerous uh, for folks that um, incarcerated people and staff um, in prisons that don't have air conditioning. And that makes it really unsafe uh, for people there. Uh, The legislature did not put money towards um, fixing that problem this year, which I think was a big disappointment to advocates in that space and and also climate advocates. So it's a mixed bag. Um, There's a lot of money coming down from the federal government uh, that is going to try to address some of these things. And I think it kind of remains to be seen whether Texas is going to take advantage of it and like apply it in a way that makes sense for the state in the context of climate change. Yeah, because I I think you you have these sort of broader policy conversations about the effects of, you know, extended drought on industries like agriculture. 
and the production of you know all sorts of goods and foods and there's the financial toll on farmers and ranchers who are behind that work but then it's also about daily lives right the the folks who maybe don't have the financial means to actually fix up their air conditioning system or or the ability to sort of keep their home safely cooled during these sort of weather patterns obviously the folks whose jobs it is to work outside in these environments and you know to your point about whether this gets the enough attention or, or the sort of necessary attention by lawmakers it seems like we we've often talked about these things in the on the legislative in the legislative sphere through like industry conversations and less so on those sort of day-to-day tolls, which which I think was particularly tough to see with, you know, Webb County in particular, where where you quoted the the chief medical examiner, Dr. Corrine Stern, she said, deaths rolled by heat stroke are rolled accidents, and accidents by definition are preventable. And all of these deaths could have been prevented. But but it's also that part where not everybody has the means to it's not sort of an equal playing field in being able to prevent the heat's effect on you and and i think we see that a lot among the folks who maybe aren't as often part of the conversation at the legislature yeah for sure i think that the the quote from the medical examiner is really poignant um because again uh heat kills more people than than other weather events uh annually and with the heat getting worse and worse in Texas i think that we will see more and more deaths we're trying to get better about tracking it too um there's that's that's a, actually a big issue which i think that the state um and local governments could take on if if they wanted to is just to get a little bit better at figuring out just how many people are dying from the heat um, because that's something that, you know, we're not going to get for a few more weeks in Texas, but we won't even get the full toll. Like when we reported at the end of last year that we saw a two decade high in the number of people dying from the heat in 2022, it was a way undercount because heat is one of those conditions that you wouldn't necessarily die. Um, your death certificate wouldn't necessarily say died from heat stroke. Sometimes it will, um, but sometimes it'll be like heart attack and like heat was a um, amplifying condition of that death. And so actually figuring out the like total human toll of how much the heat is causing in excess deaths in Texas um, is a very, very big question and something that is not really being analyzed um, by governments in the state right now. Um, so I guess that's one thing that I would hope is just that by um, you know local governments seeing the toll that it's taking on their communities, that they put more emphasis in trying to figure out exactly how bad the problem is. And as that happens, maybe we get more and more momentum in places like the legislature, because if people are dying, you know, whether you think it's caused by climate change or not, I think that there ought to be a government response. Yeah, it's like that. It's it's almost needing to connect all of those pieces that 
and starting with the fact that often these death certificates won't actually have the word heat in them. And, you know, and it's also, you know, I grew up, speaking of Webb County, I grew up in Laredo. And like, this was a place where, you know, on those late summer days, you'd be sweating just from the walk from your office to your car while you waited for your AC to really like kick in. And that was if you had AC in your car, right? And this was a place where the like the kids who were in band had to practice in the mornings before school instead of after because the parking lots were just too hot for them to actually be able to practice in the in the evenings. And like all of those things, I think, are often just like a way of life in in areas like Laredo, where you do have, you know, hotter temperatures in general. But this idea of people dying by heat stroke was like not and these like warnings and the need to sort of be more preventative preventative about this are not sort of things I remember even hearing about growing up there and I I do wonder if as this as this problem becomes more widespread as you see temperatures increase across the state uh, and more and more folks are you know sadly affected by this often in worst case scenarios even killed by this is there the possibility that the conversation or the willingness to have the conversation on a policy level changes when more people feel the impact of this, when it's not just like one community that's used to living in hot temperatures, but when you have more communities that are having to deal with the effects of that and whether that actually does bring some change to how we even talk about some of these things. Yeah. I think maybe, but also maybe not. (laughs) Because, yeah, I spoke to some researchers about the communication of climate change. And Yale has a really great program on climate change communication where they do some studies and surveys of public perceptions of climate change and extreme weather events. And studies have basically found that Republicans and Democrats who go through the exact same weather event characterize it differently in terms of whether it was caused by climate change or not. They can go through the exact same thing and their political beliefs will cause them to interpret that event with a certain lens, right? But on the other hand, there we are seeing in some of the surveys that an increasing number of Americans believe that climate change is occurring. Almost three quarters of Americans now believe climate change is occurring. Um, And the researcher I spoke with said she's seeing emerging evidence that experience with extreme weather may be now playing a bigger role in people's perceptions of realizing that climate change is happening than it did in the past. And so I think we're kind of on the early edge of this. And maybe, you know, as we see, sadly, more extreme weather events and more of the impacts in people's backyards than they may start to change their mind. Well, Erin, thanks for chatting with me about this this week. That's all the time we have. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Texas Biomed, and the Texas Association of Community Colleges. Thanks as well to our producer, Justin, and on behalf of Matthew, who we hope does not abandon us for the cooler temperatures and scenic views of Colorado Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. Hear from Colin Allred, Barry Weiss, Douglas Brinkley, Mary Trump, and many others at the 2023 Texas Tribune Festival. 
happening September 21st to the 23rd in Austin. Join us for Conversations That Matter with leaders in politics, technology, education, and culture. Learn more at tribfest.org.